0: Bibles, if you would please, and open them to the book of Revelation, chapter 14. And this evening, we're looking at the ending verses of this 14th chapter, which you could call an advanced narrative of the final battle that's fought on the earth. Now, for centuries, there have been battles that have been fought, going all the way back to almost to the beginning of time. Uh, men have been at war, and there have been a lot great, a lot of great battles that have been fought. And if we look at the history of Israel, uh, there's much written about warfare. When Israel first came out of Egypt, it wasn't long before they encountered enemies who were trying to stop them from going to the Promised Land. And I particularly remember one battle when Israel was going through the wilderness that they uh, fought with the Amalekites. And if you remember the story, this was when Israel fought at Rephidim. And Moses went upon the hill, and there he was watching the battle. And the story goes that whenever Moses' hands came down to his side, that the Amalekites prevailed. But when Moses' hands were lifted up, then Israel prevailed. And so Aaron and Hur came and they stood on either side of Moses and they raised up his hands until the battle ended and Israel won that battle. And then upon entering Canaan, where we know the story of Jericho and that very famous battle that was fought in a miraculous way and won in a miraculous way. Then there was the next battle that came at Ai. And in that battle, Israel ended up in defeat because there was sin in the camp. And then, when Israel got into the land after it had been conquered, they spent uh, a lot of time trying to defend their country against foreign invaders against aggression, and so they fought against Philistines and Egyptians and Assyrians and Babylons and Babylonians rather and so there were great battles that had been fought on israel 's soil. But there is one final battle that's coming to this earth, and it also will be fought in Israel. And this is a battle that will end warfare warfare forever. And chapter 14 gives us a very brief preview of that battle. Uh, The victor has already been announced. That's the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. So I'd like you to look in uh, chapter 14 of Revelation tonight. We're going to start reading at verse number 14. If you'd stand with me, please, as we look at God's word. Uh, Revelation 14, verse 14. John speaking, And I looked, and behold, a white cloud. And upon the cloud one sat like unto the Son of Man, having on his head a golden crown, and in his hand a sharp sickle. And another angel came out of the temple, crying with a loud voice to him that sat on the cloud, Thrust in thy sickle and reap, for the time is come for thee to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. And the angel thrust in his sickle under the earth and gathered the vine of the earth and cast it under the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden without the city, and blood came out of the winepress, even unto the horse bridles, by the space of a thousand and six hundred furlongs. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much that we have the opportunity to present your word tonight. And bless us as we look into... This passage in Revelation, give us some understanding of your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. I want to remind you again of the structure of chapter number 14. Uh, this is a parenthetical chapter, and what it does is to give us a preview of some coming events that will be explained in more detail in the following chapters. And there's a battle that's previewed in this chapter, and more detail is given about it in chapters 16 and 19. I think most of you already know what that battle is. It's the Battle of Armageddon. And there's a lot been said about that, and I'm sure you've heard about it. We're only going to discuss it, just touch on it very briefly tonight, and then we will come back to it, and we'll talk uh, talk about it a little bit more in later chapters. But if I could use one one phrase to describe the last seven verses of the 14th chapter. I would call it a great harvest. In the end of the world, there's coming a great harvest. And this is not a harvest of crops, but this is a harvest of people. Now, as we read the passage here... Whether two harvests are intended or one, I don't absolutely know for sure. But nevertheless, I do know this, that the Lord is coming to reap his harvest. Now, I think it would be helpful for us to try to understand or point out again that... When we talk about the second coming of Christ, that actually covers a wide range of events. Now, sometimes people try to wrap up the second coming into the time that Jesus actually appears in the air, and he takes the church out of the world, he raptures his people. And to most people, that to them is the second coming of Christ. Well, that is the second coming, but it's only a part of it. The rapture is when Jesus comes back in the air, and at that time he doesn't actually set foot upon the earth. And then at the rapture, after that, the tribulation period begins. That's when the Antichrist is revealed. All the various judgments take place upon the earth. And for that first three and a half years of the tribulation period, that's when the Antichrist is gathering up his coalition of governments. And then in the last three and a half years of tribulation, that's called the great tribulation and this is when the antichrist is ruling the world in terror but at the end of the tribulation period they come there comes the second phase of christ's coming and this is when he comes to this earth with a mighty army of angels and of saints and he sets foot upon the earth and he does battle against an army of men that is 200 million strong and that is the battle of armageddon and it happens just before the establishment of the millennial kingdom Now some of you have asked me for a timeline of these events because it's a little bit hard to put it all into focus and to get a picture of actually what's taking place when. And so tonight, accompanying your outline, I do have a a timeline for you. We're not actually going to explain all of that tonight, but you can look that over and you can kind of see where we are in this whole period that comes at the end of the world. Now I said a moment ago that we're not absolutely sure if there's one harvest that's spoken of in these verses. Uh, some believe that there are actually two harvests. And whether there are two harvests or one, I, I, I really don't know for sure. But at least we do know this, there is one harvest that comes in two parts. And I think that that actually fits the text better than just a single event. So I'm going to proceed tonight in tonight's message with the assumption that we at least have two different aspects of one event that's spoken of in this chapter. So what I'm going to do is to divide this sermon into two parts and we're going to talk about one harvest. The next week we'll come about come back and talk about the other. So the first harvest that we're going to speak about tonight is the reaping of wheat. And this is actually the harvest of believers. These are people who have survived during the tribulation and now they're ready to enter into the millennial kingdom. Now I think it's Interesting that very often today, when we speak of sowing and reaping and harvesting in connection with soul winning, that we use that kind of terminology. That's very common terminology to say that when we sow seeds of the gospel and we see people come to know Christ as Savior, that often we will say that we have a harvest or we have harvested those Christians. And I don't think that that is necessarily bad terminology because in the gospel of John, uh, Jesus was giving his disciples an object lesson about this. And right after the incident where he spoke with the woman at the well, he, he told his disciples in John 4:45, "...say not ye, there are yet four months, and then cometh harvest. Behold, I say unto you, lift up your eyes and look on the field, for they are white already to harvest." There Jesus was referring to the Samaritans and he was teaching the disciples that they needed to get busy preaching the gospel of Christ. They needed to go out and sow the seeds and bring those people in. But what we need to understand about this is that the harvesting is not something that's actually done by the soul winner. Our job is the sowing and not the reaping. The reaping is done by God. Harvesting is God's job because he's the one that makes the seed of the gospel effective. But saying that we harvest is really not so bad as long as we understand that all the work that's done in a person's heart is done by the Holy Spirit. We have no control over that. And so in a sense, we do share in the harvest because we're able to see the fruit of our labors. And that's why we sing songs like bringing in the sheaves. That song says, by and by the harvest and the labor ended, we shall come rejoicing, bringing in the sheaves. And the sheaves there, of course, is talking about stalks of grain. These are people that have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. So that's the imagery that we see here in Revelation chapter 14. Only very definitely, we say that the harvesting and the reaping is done by Christ alone. This is the ingathering gathering of all those who have received the gospel during the tribulation. These are people who have survived, and they are faithful to the Lamb. Now I'd like for us to notice a few particulars about verses 14 through 16 tonight. Uh, verse number 14 says, And I looked, and behold, a white cloud. And upon the cloud one sat like unto the Son of Man, having on his head a golden crown, and in his hand a sharp sickle. I want us to notice first the cloud of judgment. Often in Scripture, the coming of Christ is associated with clouds. Daniel wrote, I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man came with clouds, with the clouds of heaven, and came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Jesus spoke of coming in the clouds in Matthew chapter 24, and then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, and then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn, and they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. The Apostle Paul wrote about it in First Thessalonians 4, 17, Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. And then, at the beginning of the revelation, we read, Behold, he cometh with clouds, and every eye shall see him. And they also which pierced him, and all the kindreds of the earth, shall wail because of him, even so. Amen. So clouds are often associated with Christ. And whenever you see clouds referencing the coming of Christ, it's always speaking or reminding us about judgment. I remember years ago uh, there was an old black preacher back in Kentucky and he had a television program. And at the beginning of every program it opened up with a scene of clouds. And I think that every sermon that he ever preached, at least the ones that I heard him preach, he was always speaking about Christ coming in the clouds. And then I also remember when I was young that my dad, uh, when we go out on trips or in the, on the summer afternoons in Kentucky, that often he'd be seen out in the yard with a camera just taking pictures of clouds. He loved to look at clouds because he said that reminded him of the coming of the Lord. But when we see those clouds, that is a reminder of judgment. And when we read this in uh, chapter 14, it says, One like the Son of Man sitting on a cloud. And that, of course, is referring to none other, none other, none other than the Lord Jesus and the fact or uh, that judgment is about to come upon the earth. Now, if you want to make a quick notation in your Bible here, uh, you can do this. You can underline that phrase, the Son of Man, because that's the very last time in all the Scripture where Jesus is ever referred to as the Son of Man. Now, we also know by the next phrase that this is Jesus, because it says, having on his head a golden crown. And this is the crown of victory. On several occasions, we've noted uh, the difference in the underlying Greek word. Whenever you see the word crown in the New Testament, sometimes it's the word diadema. And that means a crown like a coronation crown. A crown that you would give a king who's going to rule. And then at other times the word that underlies this is the word Stephanos. And that's the word that we see here. And this one refers to a wreath like a crown. A wreath that would be put upon the head of a victor after he's won a contest. Uh, a contest. So Jesus, of course, is the victor. He's the conqueror. To him belongs all the spoils of the battle. And so he's the one who will sit in judgment, who has the right to do that. And the crown signifies that right to reign and to judge. Now again, we're talking here about Christ in his second advent. And that's far different from the first advent because in that advent, Christ came in great poverty. But here in the second coming, he comes with great power. Now we notice then thirdly tonight, the careful selection. Now we're going to spend a little bit of time here because in this place we see that Christ is no longer the sower. He's not the one who's carefully spreading out the seeds like he did in the first advent. In his first coming, uh, Jesus' mission was very clearly defined. He said that he was the one who came to seek and to save that which was lost. And so Jesus in the New Testament and the Gospels is always seen in that capacity. He's telling people about what they need to do to enter into the kingdom of God. So Jesus Christ himself, of course, is the great sower. And then throughout the Revelation, we've seen uh, multiple opportunities for people to repent and believe. Although Jesus comes and he takes the church out of the world at the rapture, yet he leaves behind or he saves some witnesses during the tribulation period. 144,000 people are called called out of the 12 tribes of Israel, and they become witnesses to the world. And despite the efforts of the Antichrist to kill them, to wipe them off the face of the earth, yet God protects them and still gives people the opportunity to repent of their sins. And then as we studied a few weeks ago, we saw that God took a highly unusual step, and that uh, step has never been done before, and that's when God gave an angel a new duty And that was the duty of preaching the gospel. And so in verse number 6 of this 14th chapter, we find that angel who appears in the noonday sky. And all over the world, people are able to look at him and to hear the message of that angel as he proclaims the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so it's evident to us that uh, Christ wants people to come to him. He implores people to come to him. And there's not one person who is going to be left out of the call there that he gives that people repent and believe the gospel but now as we read this we find that that's all over the time for gospel preaching is done and we're not going to see that again in the book of revelation now has come the time of reaping and so here we see the son of man and he has a sharp sickle in his hand Maybe some of you that are younger may not be able to relate so well to this. But before the days when we had the, when the huge combines were invented, uh, they used to have to cut down the stalks of wheat by hand. All of it was done by hand. And so there was a sickle that was a sharp, long, curved knife with a handle on it. And the reaper would come along and with a swipe, he would cut down the stalks of wheat. So before the combines, uh, reaping wheat was a very difficult thing to do. And one of the reasons it was difficult was because along with the wheat, they would also grow a grass that's called the tares. The tares look very much like the wheat. And these two grew up together. And uh, they looked very similar because both wheat and tares are a type of grass. But the tares were a wild grass and they're actually poisonous. So as the grain began to ripen, the tares would become more obvious because the tares would begin to turn black and they would stand up. But the wheat would become heavy with the the seeds that had grown. And so the heads of wheat would begin to bend over. And so then uh, the tares would stand out and you could tell the difference between the tares and the wheat. But that didn't happen until the time of harvest. And before that time, you couldn't actually tell the difference. So what you would do is you would let the wheat grow with the tares until the harvest came. Because if you tried to separate them out, there was always the danger that you would cut down the good wheat along with the poisonous grasses. Now that kind of gives you a little bit of background to a parable that Jesus spoke in Matthew chapter 13. I want you to turn there if you would for just a moment. To Matthew 13, verse number 24. And when we read this, I want you to keep in mind what I've told you about the difference between the tares and the wheat. So in Matthew chapter 13, uh, starting in verse number 24, it says, Another parable put he forth unto them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is likened to a man which sowed good seed in his field. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. But when the blade was sprung up and brought forth fruit, then appeared the tares also. So the servants of the householder came and said unto him, Sir, didst not thou sow good seed in thy field? From whence then hath it tares? He said unto them, An enemy hath done this. Servants said unto him, Wilt thou then that we go and gather them up? But he said, Nay, lest while ye gather up the tares, ye root up also the wheat with them. Let both grow together unto the harvest, and in the time of harvest I will say to the reapers, Gather ye together first the tares, and bind them in bundles and to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. Now here in the parable there is a man who sows good seed in his field, then he waits for the wheat to begin to grow. But he didn't know that while he was sleeping, there was an enemy came in, and he sowed tares among the the wheat. And so when it was time for the plants to begin growing, uh, you couldn't tell that this had happened. But as it got closer to the harvest, the plants started to look a little bit differently, and it was obvious to his servants there was something wrong. So they went to the farmer, and they asked him if they should go out and try to cut down the tares, separate them out from the wheat. But the farmer didn't want them to do that because if you do it, you'll pull out some of the wheat along with the tares. Now, I don't know how many of you have ever raised a garden, but you've probably done this. You've gone out to weed your garden, and you notice that there is a weed that's growing very close to a good plant. And the roots of that, of that weed have intertwined with a good plant. And so you start to pull out the weed, and at the same time, the good plant starts to come out with it when that happens, you don't have any choice but to let the weed grow. You let it grow with the good plant until that the good plant ripens. And then at that point, it doesn't matter if you pull them both out together. So then you can pick between them and can choose the good plant. Now, if we go down to verse number 36 of this uh, chapter in Matthew 13, the disciples were a little bit confused about what Jesus was saying. So he asked them for an explanation of the parable. And there is no better commentator on Jesus' words than Jesus himself. So let's read what he says. Matthew 13, verse 36. Then Jesus sent the multitude away and went into the house. And his disciples came unto him, saying, Declare unto us the parable of the tares of the field. He answered and said unto them, He that soweth the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. The good seed are the children of the kingdom. But the tares are the children of the wicked one. The enemy that sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the world, and the reapers are the angels. As therefore the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so shall it be in the end of this world. The Son of Man shall send forth his angels, and they shall gather out of his kingdom all things that offend and them which do iniquity, and shall cast them into a furnace of fire. There shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth, Then shall the righteous shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father, who hath ears to hear, let him hear. Now there you can very clearly see the relationship between this parable and Revelation chapter 14. And here Jesus is referring to the last harvest, the final reaping, when there will be a separation between those that are saved and those that are lost. Now in the literal harvest of the wheat and the tares, the tares would be gathered up into bundles, and then they would be burned. But the good grain was also bundled, and then it was taken to the barn. And this is what Christ is going to do in the final reaping of the earth. He's going to very carefully separate the good from the bad, and those that follow the Antichrist, they will be gathered up, and they will be burned. Now, we saw that in verses 9 through 11 of this chapter, and that particular part of this will be the subject of the next message. But the good grain is also going to be gathered. Those who were faithful during the tribulation period, those who would not give in to the Antichrist and bow down and worship his image, those people will be reaped out of the earth, and then they will go into the millennial kingdom to rule and reign with Christ. Now, I want to say a few more things about this too sort of wrap things up for the evening. Uh, The next time when we come back, we're going to talk about the other part of the harvest that deals with the lost. We're talking here about the grain harvest. That's the harvest of those that are saved. It's a good grain. The next harvest is the harvest of the grapes, and that talks about the terrible destruction of the wicked that comes. So let me make a few comments about this, and then we'll be done. Some of you may think that I get a little bit too negative in my preaching sometimes. Surely you wouldn't think that, would you? And uh, I preach kind of negatively sometimes about whether other people believe. And sometimes I can get very caustic about that. And so you may think, well, the thing that you ought to do, Pastor Smith, you ought to spend a little bit more time talking about the wheat and dwelling on that. And you really don't worry about the tares. Don't speak so negatively about that. Well, we can't always make perfect analogies when we're talking about parables and the examples that Jesus gave. But we ought not to think, because of this parable that we read in Matthew chapter 13, that we're not to be concerned about tares that are growing right now. There is an enemy that we face every day, and that enemy is sowing tares among the wheat. He's trying to plant his false doctrines among God's people. And so this is something that we absolutely do need to be worried about right now. And we need to tell people about this right now. Then I also think that you can't extend parables beyond what they're intended to teach. Sometimes that's what preachers will do. They find all kinds of secret and hidden meanings in parables. But Jesus was pretty clear about what he wanted to say. And when he gave his explanations, he told exactly what he meant by what he said. So we do need to look at the analogies. And sometimes we have to do just a little bit more explaining. But there is that great danger. We're facing it that we have an enemy. That's the devil. And he's sowing the tares among the the wheat. So he has his plants that are growing. Sometimes they might even be growing right here in Berean Baptist Church. And what they are, they're poisonous weeds. And they're a great danger when they're placed side by side with good plants. Now, one of the things that happens is as the plants grow together, uh, the roots do become entangled. Now, I'm not talking about Berean at this particular time, but there are many churches where the, the plants have been sowed by the devil. The tares have been sowed. And the nutrients of truth are then uh, taken away from the good plants out of the soil. And the good plants begin to wither. Now those good plants are still good because they are believers in Christ. But they're being deprived of the truth. And there's someone there who's further poisoning the soil that they're growing in. And so those plants, those Christians begin to wither and dry up. Sometimes the error that's sown and the tares that are growing are very difficult to detect. That's because Satan is good at this. Uh, the tares are hard to recognize among the wheat because when there's a little bit of false that get mi- gets mixed in with the truth, sometimes we think, well, that looks good, so let's go after that. I mean, it, it looks like it's all right, and so we confuse truth with error. Now, sometimes we can spot that error because whenever you see a church that begins to have big followings all of a sudden and it looks like they're, they're doing things that feel good to the flesh and people begin to flock into those churches and, and, and begin to uh, plant themselves in, in those churches, then you know that something is amiss. You know, I think about that uh, article that was in the Press Democrat about the church in Santa Rosa that's for the people who don't like church. Now when you see something like that, that's almost a hit right between your eyes with a mallet that's stamped T-A-R-E-S in all big letters. Because when people start that don't like to go to church, all of a sudden do like to start going to church, because there's something there that fits their personalities, fits their lifestyle, fits the things that they like to do, then you know that they're bringing tares to go in along with the wheat, if in fact there was any wheat to begin with. Now that's the extreme form and uh, the terrors become very obvious. But what is much more subtle is when error begins to creep over a long period of time. It's a long time developing and the error grows more slowly. And what happens then is that people are very gradually shifted away from certain doctrines that are to be believed to the point that the truth is no longer recognized. Now that folks, is what has happened with the doctrines of grace in Baptist churches. From the beginning of this country all the way up until about the first quarter of the 20th century, which is a period of about 300 years, and even if you want to go back further than that, if you want to go back to the time of the pilgrims, you could have sat down with just about any Baptist and had a level-headed discussion about the things that we're teaching in this church, and there would be no problem with agreement. They absolutely followed the very same teachings that we teach today. But Baptists began to let some things creep in. And so about the middle of the 20th century, these seeds of, of, of false doctrines and so forth were growing so that now if you want to discuss these very same doctrines, these people can become very violent about it. I mean, this is not an easy subject anymore, and sometimes people can foam at the mouth and really get mad about this because of the doctrines that we teach. And the thing has gotten so far off course that if you really examine it, you'll find that the liberal modernism that was in the early 20th century has now become the conservative fundamentalism of the 21st century. So now you see the roles are reversed. And so now you have in churches people that think that the wrong doctrine is the right doctrine and the right doctrine is the wrong doctrine. And if you preach what we're preaching today, you won't, find, uh, you won't have any trouble finding people that will brand you a heretic because you believe what we're teaching here. Now let me show you something about how that reversal can be detected. Now do you remember that I said that when it comes close to the harvest, the tares become black and they stand up. And the full heads of wheat begin to bow. So how do you spot this very thing in our Baptist churches? Well, we're preaching the absolute sovereignty of God. And we're preaching that man was put upon this earth to do only one thing, and that is to glorify God. And so so to us, anything that gets in the way of that, any doctrine that has any other goal than that, becomes anathema to us. And so what we're doing is we are bowing our heads to God. We are bending over. And that's so the reaper can very clearly see the difference between tares and wheat. He sees that right doctrine. Now on the other hand, when you have this mixture of untrue doctrine in the church, it causes people to begin to lift their heads. And so what men do is they become king. And now it doesn't make any difference what God says. Man has the final say. God can do ever so much, but he can't accomplish man's salvation without man's cooperation. And so the ultimate determiner in a person's salvation has not become God, or is not really God, but is man. Now, on one hand, we're bowing to the majesty, the glory, and the sovereignty of the Almighty God. But the other doctrine has caused people to pop up their heads, to stand up and to assert themselves as if they are the ultimate end of God's creation. Now, folks, that's the reason why I keep bringing these things up. I keep talking about this because what I don't want to happen to us is that we become so complacent and we go with the flow of what's being taught. The harvest comes and then it's difficult to tell the true from the untrue. Now, I have one more plant analogy that I want to give you tonight. Now, this one's not about wheat. It's about sunflowers. Several years ago, uh, we took a summertime trip to Europe and we were driving in the south of France, and in this particular area of France, there are thousands upon thousands of acres of sunflowers that are grown, uh, grown commercially for the seeds. So we were driving along in the late afternoon about sundown, and as the sun was going down, all the heads of the sunflowers began to bend over. Now that night we stayed in a hotel and then we got up the next morning to resume the trip and as the sun started to rise you could look out over those thousands of acres of sunflowers and as the sun was rising the heads of the flowers began to come up and as the sun moved through the sky you could look at the fields and you could see the heads of the sunflowers turning towards the sun straining to get that sunlight. And I thought about that when I saw that that day. And I thought about what a great illustration that is of the revelation of truth. I think that what's happened to us is that we are right now in the night of truth. And sometimes it's very difficult for us to just hold our heads up and proclaim the truth. It's difficult for us to live in a world when people are opposed to the truth. And so we struggle against that and sometimes it's hard for us to be cheerful about it. But the night only lasts so long. One day Jesus is going to break through the clouds. And then the son of righteousness, the word of God says, will arise with healing in his wings. And when he does, all of God's people are going to strain towards the sun. The S-O-N. And we're going to rejoice in the coming of the Lord. And we'll see his righteousness when he comes in his glory. So here's what we're talking about here. This is a harvest. The first part of it. Is the harvest of God's people. This is the harvest of the faithful. And God is coming to reap, and he's going to carefully gather up those that are his, and he's going to separate them out, and he's going to prepare them for great things in his kingdom. Now, the others are going to face a different harvest. Those who aren't believers in Christ face a very different harvest from this. Next week, we're going to come back and talk about that second harvest or the second phase of this harvest And we'll see what happens to those who are unbelievers. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the time we've had to spend in your word tonight. I ask you, Lord, that you would open up our eyes to truth. And I pray, Lord, that you would reveal the truth of your word. And may we always look at you as our helper, as the one who has all things in his hands, that all things are of you. And may we do nothing less ever than to glorify and honor you, to magnify your name. Bless as we sing tonight. We give you the praise. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.